a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. By the way, that's a greeting for longtime listeners as well as uh, first-time wrong thinkers. I don't have all the answers, and I won't pretend that I do, but if there's ever been a time where we needed to challenge the prevailing narrative or at least look closely and, and evaluate for ourselves, does this hold up, does this pass the sniff test, I would think that uh, this is such a time. Never have I seen such a, a concerted effort to push dissent right out the window and make sure that there's an official version and we're all going to be on the same page no matter what. Now, that may not bother some people, but to me, that's like, ooh, that that sounds like a recipe for some really bad stuff. So here I am, little old me, to uh, help try to make sense of it. And to do that, I'm going to share with you some of the best information that I have found that sheds light on the passing scene that helps us understand what is happening in the world as well as what you and I can do about it. Because that's the thing we tend to overlook. And I've got some great stuff to share with you today. I want to start by thanking my sponsors who make this program possible. I would encourage you, visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and you'll find a link to each of these sponsors. They include MonticelloCollege.org lifesavingfood.com pure-light.com hslammo.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, let's start by talking about truth. I heard this said a few few months ago and it has just stuck in my head. Truth is not something given to us by authority figures. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. I'm not suggesting, by the way, the ultimate authority of the universe, God, you can trust what God gives you. If God gives you truth, especially on a personal level, you can trust it. But any earthly authority figures, you know what? There's a thing called agency or uh, self-determination, free will that comes into play. And you have to be able to figure these things out for yourself. If you don't, it, uh, well, let's just say it has some some pretty negative side effects. And this is worth keeping in mind as we see an unapologetic push to eliminate dissent from the public square. Saw a very interesting article over the weekend from Dave McGrogan. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research. And the title is, Is the State Your Single Source of Truth? Now, he says, in a short clip circulating on the Internet, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, speaking about misinformation about COVID vaccines, says in an offhand way, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. End quote. Whew, how thoughtful. And by the way, he says, in doing so, she unwittingly declares the ambition of the state. If we follow the French-Hungarian libertarian thinker Anthony Dejasse in his seminal book on the subject and imagine it as a unitary person with a will of its own to be the single source of truth, the single source of authority, the single source of of loyalty, the single source of power. The state was already far down that path before 2020, but in the age of the pandemic, 
the question arises as to whether it's almost at its destination. Now, David McGrogan says, let us step back for a moment. For Dejase, the story of the state is the steady growth and accumulation of public power, not deriving from an authoritarian impulse, but chiefly through beneficial alliances between government and groups within the population. And though he doesn't use the term, he observes that such alliances are often created through conceiving of a particular segment of the population as vulnerable or in need of the state's protection. Hence, the group known as the poor become allied to the state through the provision of welfare, through ethnic minorities become allied to the state through non-discrimination laws and the drive to equality. Employees become allied to the state through workplace regulations and labor law. The aged become allied to the state through the provision of state pensions and social security. Children through the provision of education and child protection services and so on. Gradually, he says, in this fashion, the state expands, not as Nietzsche's cold monster, but as the benevolent protector of one vast swath of the population after another. Now, there are almost always perfectly good reasons for these alliances at the time that they're made. The point, though, to paraphrase Michael Foucault, is that while nothing is bad, everything is dangerous. And the danger here is that when the state expands... It tends to do so at the expense of other sources of authority and loyalty. The family, the community, church or other religious group, the employer, the club, all are undermined as the state grows. Now, just as a quick aside here, longer time listeners to this program will know I've I've talked often about uh, the seven institutions that make up a healthy society. And he lists most of these here. They include family, community, Church, business, academia, media, government. When all of these things are operating in harmony with each other, one isn't trying to overpower the others. In other words, when each of these institutions is exerting influence within its own sphere, that's a healthy society. That's a society that is progressing, prospering, solving its problems. But if one or more of those institutions takes charge, things get lopsided and things get crazy. And I'm not naming any particular institution, but you'll notice that one of those has kind of become our de facto problem solver. Everything must go to this institution. Here's a hint. It ain't family, community, media, academia, church, business. Did I miss anything? Yeah, (laughs) You you get the one that's left. Another Francophone thinker, Bertrand de Juvenal, tells us power, that's his word for the state, despises competition. And the alliances it makes with vulnerable groups generally have the effect of inserting the state between individuals and alternative sources of authority, and often severing those ties entirely. Here's a good example of this. He says, welfareism loosens familial bonds as people become less reliant on their extended families for support. Public education weakens the ties between children and church due to the diminishing role for faith schooling. Equality laws often pit people against one another based on their immutable characteristics, and so on. For power, the only relationship that matters is between the state on the one hand and each and every individual in return, atomized and severed from all ties in the private sphere. 
Now, in this case, Dave McGrogan reminds us that uh, an important point about all this is that it's not due to any sort of conspiracy or not or even anything nefarious, he says. It's due simply to the consequences of developments which are entirely reasonable on their face and which seem perfectly benign when instituted. I mean, come on, who would be against free public education? Who would be against equality laws? Who could be against state pensions? Nothing's bad, remember. It's just that everything is dangerous. And, of course, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic highlights the dangers in starkly luminous yellow paint. The piecemeal expansion of the state that we've seen taking place over the last 150 years or so was often built, as we've seen, on conceiving of sections of the population, the poor, the old, children, minority groups, and so on, as vulnerable and in need of help. We're now seeing what happens when the state is able to conceive as vulnerable not just a section of the population, but its entirety. Suddenly, potentially nothing is outside the purview of public power because every single interpersonal human relationship relates to the overriding goal of stopping the spread. The family, the church, the community group, the workplace, even the sexual act, the state has now seen fit to put itself between individuals, wherever they are, in whatever context, even in their own homes. Now, the consequences for the state in all this are entirely favorable. As will be recalled with the juvenile's power, there's really only one objective, to be the single source of truth, loyalty, and authority. And for the unhappy society, the consequences will now play out. Increasingly, the only relationship that will matter is between the individual and the state. And the spheres of life that remain unregulated will likely shrink yet further, Boris Johnson, the U.K. prime minister, has made a point throughout the pandemic of telling various actors, businesses, employers, employees, and often the population at large that the government will put its arms around them. He's also very keen on using state power in perpetuity to ensure that the population eats properly, cycles regularly, and uses public transportation instead of cars. Poor health, obesity, and climate change also being rationales, of course, for treating us all as vulnerable and expanding the state accordingly. Our future as a result begins to look bleak indeed, and the final victory of the state hoves into view. I thought that was a particularly elegant uh, recounting of what's been happening. Is the state your single source of truth? I'm just going to hazard a guess. Nah, probably not. You would not be listening to a program such as this if that were the case. Stick around. We've got some more great stuff straight ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. I am so grateful to have you among my audience today. And in fact, you know, if you're if you're a first time listener or if you're just, you know, checking it out, I've got to see is this guy as crazy as he appears to be. First of all, I hope not. But <laughs> but thanks for taking a chance. I wanted to share with you an article here from John Tierney. This is from cityjournal.org, and it's called The Panic Pandemic. Now, this is a fairly lengthy article, 
but it is one of the best pieces that I have read on one of the clearest lessons that we've picked up over the last year and a half, and that is all these people, all the authoritarians out there assuring us, hey, we're all in this together, were in reality in it for themselves. And specifically what I'm talking about is the the fear-mongering from journalists, scientists, and politicians appears to have done more harm than the coronavirus itself did. So I want to share just a couple of excerpts. This is, again, it's a pretty lengthy article. Thankfully, being the nice guy that I am, I have uh, supplied a link to it in the show notes and uh, would encourage you, do, do the extra homework. So, I'm, not, I'm not asking you, please immerse yourself in all the bad news of what's going on, but if you're serious about the state not being your single source of truth or the one trusted voice in your life, if you're the kind of person who really wants to know things for yourself, I'm giving you show notes that can help you in that direction. What you do with that information, totally up to you. There is no implied, you know, you'll have to agree if you click on this. I don't believe that. I don't expect you to agree with me. In fact, I'm totally okay if you don't. But we've got to be able to think outside of the little box that's been, you know, prescribed for us. Of Here's what you're allowed to think, and this is, this is what's acceptable but if you stray beyond this, well, we're going to have to marginalize you and treat you like some kind of a tinfoil hat-wearing kook. Which sounds like a really bad thing, right? Nobody wants to be labeled that. But I am going to point out as gently and humbly as possible, sometimes the kooks are right. Panic Pandemic. John Tierney says the United States suffered through two lethal waves of contagion in the past year and a half. The first was a viral pandemic that killed one in 500 Americans, typically a person over 75, suffering from other serious conditions. The second, and far more catastrophic, was a moral panic that swept the nation's guiding institutions. Instead of keeping calm and carrying on, the American elite flouted the norms of governance, journalism, academic freedom, and worst of all, science. They misled the public about the origins of the virus and the true risk that it posed. Ignoring their own carefully prepared plans for a pandemic, they claimed unprecedented powers to impose untested strategies with terrible collateral damage. As evidence of their mistakes mounted, they stifled debate by vilifying dissenters, censoring criticism, and suppressing scientific research. He says, if, as seems increasingly plausible, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 leaked out of a laboratory in Wuhan... It is the costliest blunder ever committed by scientists. And whatever the pandemic's origin, the response to it is the worst mistake in the history of the public health profession. We still have no convincing evidence that the lockdowns saved lives, but lots of evidence that they've already cost lives and will prove deadlier in the long run than the virus itself. One in three people worldwide lost a job or a business during the lockdowns. Half saw their earnings drop, according to a Gallup poll. Children, never at risk from the virus, in many places essentially lost a year of school. The economic and health consequences were felt most acutely among the less affluent in America and in the rest of the world, where the World Bank estimates more than 100 million have been pushed into extreme poverty. Now, the leaders responsible for these disasters continue to pretend that their policies worked and they assume that they can keep fooling the public. 
They promise to deploy these strategies again in the future. They might even succeed in doing so, unless we begin to understand what went wrong. Now, I'm only going to hit a couple of highlights here because there really is. There's more to, there's a lot of meat on this bone, more than I can possibly get to in this segment. But he points out the panic was started as usual by journalists. As the virus spread early last year, they highlighted the most alarming statistics and the scariest images, the estimates of a fatality rate 10 to 50 times higher than the flu, the chaotic scenes at hospitals in Italy and New York City, the predictions that national health care systems were about to collapse. The full-scale panic was set off by the release in March 2020 of a computer model at the Imperial College of, in London which predicted that unless drastic measures were taken, intensive care units would have 30 COVID patients for every available bed and that America would see 2.2 million deaths by the end of summer. That was last, you know, last year, 2020. The British researchers announced that the only viable strategy was to impose draconian restrictions on businesses, schools, and social gatherings until a vaccine arrived. And this extraordinary project was swiftly declared the consensus among public health officials, politicians, journalists, and academics. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, endorsed it and then became the unassailable authority for those purporting to, quote, follow the science. What had originally been a limited lockdown, 15 days to slow the spread, became long-term policy across much of the United States and the world. A few scientists and public health experts objected, noting that an extended lockdown was a novel strategy of unknown effectiveness that had been rejected in previous plans for a pandemic. It was a dangerous experiment being conducted without knowing the answer to the most basic question, just how lethal is this virus? Now, he goes into the background here of the various voices, and I'm talking informed voices like John Io and Io Anitis, an epidemiologist at Stanford, um, Jay Bhattacharya and other colleagues from Stanford who, who spoke up and who questioned that official narrative. And of course, they were horribly treated by the press. Uh, they were labeled by other scientists and, you know, they were told, they were told you owe us all a, an apology, horrible science and so forth. The mainstream journalists piled on with hit pieces, quoting critics, accusing these researchers of endangering lives just by questioning lockdowns. Mind you, none of them were denying that there was a virus. None of them were saying this is, you know, this is just a, a virus that doesn't exist. It's a conspiracy. Nope. Nope. It was, it was a matter of people who were, were thinking rather than chanting in unison. And he walks through the, the experience that many of these individuals had. These Again, these are scientific and medical authorities who just had legitimate questions. And by the way, time has proven them to have been far more on target than their critics and their detractors were. But nobody seems to be walking back, you know, their, their statements. The Great Barrington Declaration, what they recommended, the scientists who signed that, yeah, time has actually shown them to be pretty on top of it. There are some interesting charts and graphs which show what happened with the, the way that states and, and particularly governors of states followed the, the various narratives. 
you know, of course, acting, you know, and we've got to, you know, err on the side of being safe. But it explores why the elite panicked. Why did so many go so wrong for so long? God's gift to the left is what Jane Fonda called COVID. Because it allowed people who were seeking greater authority, greater power over other people to exploit that to their heart's content. And the sad part is, average folks like you and I, well, we uh, we more or less went along. I'm saying we generally, you know, but most of the population went along. I don't know if you've been out in public lately. You noticed there really aren't that many masks anymore. Do you remember the time, what it was like to be out there and maybe be the only person when 98 or 99% of everybody else at the grocery store was wearing masks? Kind of a weird time. I hope you like this article. Check it out. It's in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, the article that I was sharing in the last segment from John Tierney is from cityjournal.org. Panic pandemic. You want to you want some good solid recounting of what exactly unwound over the last year and a half and how can how can we demonstrate that uh, so many of the authority figures who were, you know, supposedly just looking out for us and locking our lives down for our own good turned out to be in it primarily for themselves. Check it out in the show notes. Want to give a quick shout out to to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is a, a real estate operation based in St. George, but I've got good news for you. If you are, for instance, moving to the state of Utah, and right now an incredible amount of people are moving to the state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you. You can count on their experience. You can count on their insight. Decades of experience in the lending industry to get you the financing you need in a timely manner so that you can make that offer with confidence, knowing, hey, I'm squared away and not have to wait around. And, well, let's hope that uh, the financing comes through before another offer comes in. That's not a luxury most people have. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, you want to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can visit them in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street or call 435-703-4522. Well, power-hungry power government officials aren't exactly eager to let the coronavirus end. In fact, right now, what we're witnessing, and this is... It's concerning to me, but I'm not going to lie awake at night necessarily tossing and turning. What do I do? What do I do? It's just it's very clear that the people who had us locked down so much over the last 18 months. They may have eased up on some of the restrictions and we may have the sense that, hey, things are pretty much returned to normal. The question that should be in the back of your mind, though, is will it stay that way? Or will those power hungry government officials be eager to impose those restrictions again because they're already making some pretty serious noise like this. And of course it's the COVID the Delta variant of COVID that uh, they're chanting in unison about. And, and they're very scared. Oh, there's, there's infections are up and it's primarily among unvaccinated people. Tell me about the deaths. 
Are people dropping like flies? Because if the answer is no, if it's still a 99% survival rate, just like regular COVID, you know, the non-Delta variant was, then again, why should I be so fearful? Most people have had COVID by now, or at least been exposed to it. And as I understand it, the, the risk, the lethal risk still applies primarily to people who are over 70 years of age, particularly those who are obese or who have other comorbidities, other mitigating factors of health that put them at risk. That doesn't mean that therefore we should just, you know, go around and French kiss everybody that we meet on the street. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's keep this in perspective because the the people beating that drum of fear seem to be doing so for the sake of, look, we need more power over you. It's it's the only way we can solve this. Isn't that convenient? I mean, you know, for them. Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education has a great article published over the weekend in uh, the Washington Examiner. The Delta variant is no excuse to return to COVID-19 authoritarianism. And I love that he starts... With a quote from Democratic operative Rahm Emanuel, never let a serious crisis go to waste. That's the approach of those pushing for big government. They've always used that dynamic. It's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before, Emanuel said. Now, Brad Palumbo says, well, serious indeed. The COVID-19 pandemic was exploited by proponents of big government in exactly this manner. It was used to usher in unprecedented restrictions on individual freedom, mind-boggling levels of government spending, and an expansion of the welfare state that would make FDR blush. Now, even with huge swaths of the public vaccinated and case counts and deaths a tiny fraction of what they once were, some power-hungry government officials just are not willing to let this crisis end. For instance, in Los Angeles County, for example, officials just reinstated an indoor mask mandate which, by the way, applies even for vaccinated residents. They cited the spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19 as justification for the renewal of this invasive government mandate. But the Delta variant is no excuse for a return to COVID-19 authoritarianism. In fact, Brad says, while it appears to be more contagious and is wreaking havoc in some other countries, there's nothing about this strain that really changes the situation here in the United States. For one thing, the vaccines we have are still highly effective against the Delta variant. Dr. Leslie Beenan and uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi write in the Wall Street Journal, a new study from the UK found that vaccines are still incredibly effective at preventing serious illness with the Delta variant circulating. In fact, they said the Pfizer vaccine was 96% effective after two doses at preventing hospitalization. Studies from Canada and the UK show 79 to 87% effectiveness against symptomatic infection with the Delta variant. Meanwhile, almost all in the U.S. now hospitalized with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. The vaccines are as good as first heralded even against the new variants, the writers conclude. Brad Palumbo says there's simply no validity to the argument that the Delta variant somehow justifies a return to emergency measures. Indeed, he says the only somewhat coherent argument in favor of the drastic government measures has been entirely eliminated by the widespread availability of effective COVID-19 vaccines. 
Now, he says, while I don't describe to it, a legitimate argument was made that the lockdowns and other orders were justified as a way of limiting the external costs of spreading COVID-19. Simply put, it wasn't just a matter of personal responsibility or individual decision making. Your decisions weren't just affecting you, but were endangering others. So the government curtailing your liberty was justified in this telling. However, he says, now that COVID vaccines are free and widely available, there's no longer any such case to be made. Any future COVID-19 hospitalizations or deaths are directly and solely the sad result of individuals who made the decision to take a risk by not being vaccinated. So with there no longer being any issue of infecting others against their will in play, we should accept nothing less than a full and immediate restoration of our liberties. But he says, don't expect the government to hand it to us. In one glaring example, California Governor Gavin Newsom is clinging on to his emergency powers, which have allowed him unilaterally to spend billions and change or suspend 200 plus laws, even now that the state is mostly reopened. And while alarming, he says, that's not surprising. Emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. That's Nobel Prize winning economist Friedrich Hayek. Once they are suspended, it's not difficult for anyone who has assumed emergency powers to see to it that the emergency will persist. Now, Brad Palumbo says the COVID-19 emergency was real, but it has passed. Now, desperate attempts from would-be tyrants in government to cling onto their expanded powers should be seen as the naked power grabs that they truly are. Does that sound harsh? Because there's a part of me that feels like, no, that needs to be harsher. <laughs> it needs some sharper edges and uh, and needs to be, I don't know, maybe punctuated with a fist pounding on the table. I I just see so strongly, or I perceive so strongly that there are authoritarians right now in you know various you know government and science and journalism who fear that they are losing control over the people. And by the way, this doesn't just uh, apply to COVID alone. I mean, look, the whole quashing of, of misinformation is a big part of it. But it's a large, you look at the bigger picture, just zoom back a little bit, and you can see the bigger picture is, this is about stopping dissent. It's about making sure that dissent is forbidden. And I got to give them credit, you know, coming at it from this back doorway of what we'll have the social media and big tech, you know, firms, Google and Facebook and Twitter. They will do the dirty work so people can't say, well, the government is, is doing. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, and I think we're, we're grown up enough, we can admit. If these big tech giants are doing the bidding of what people in government are wanting them to do, particularly if, if the Biden White House is telling them, hey, these are sources of misinformation. You need to ban them. And then advocating. I mean, openly advocating. Look, and if they're banned on one social media platform, they ought to be banned on all of them. That's, uh, that's some pretty serious censorship going on there. And even if it's only being offered as a recommendation, in quotation marks, well, we're just recommending this. Uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, there's, there's a carrot and a stick approach with big tech and its partnership with big government. Do you want more regulation? Because if you don't take care of this, we will regulate you. I mean, it's like it's like the mafia goons coming in. Eh, there's a nice uh, social media platform you got here. Be a shame if someone were to regulate it. 
Capiche? Anyhow, if there's time to be a voice of dissent, I think this is that time. But we got to know what we're talking about, right? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, we are back. And again, I'm going to invite you to take a little trip over to thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find that I have a generous selection of show notes. Publish them with every single episode. I also have a collection of what I call resources for wrong thinkers. And these are just some of the different news aggregator sites that I have uh, I've signed up for their emails or I visit them on a daily basis. Just because they sometimes, well, not sometimes, they on a regular basis have a a broad perspective on a number of different topics across the spectrum, but they also do so from a less partisan approach. In other words, it's less red state versus blue state. You can't avoid politics entirely. Although I strongly recommend that uh, you reduce your uh, recommended daily allowance of politics if you want to have some happiness in your life. Great stuff there for you. This is for people who want to own their worldview. Um, I fully accept that this is not for everybody. And if it's if it makes you uncomfortable, I'm okay. I'm not going to be offended if you, you know, I'll just take my listening ear somewhere else. That's cool. I understand that what I am sharing is not what everybody wants. In fact, truth be told, the, the majority of people probably don't want it. But there are also people out there who really need it. I mean, who are actively looking for it. They're part of that that remnant that uh, Albert J. Nock describes, the remnant that, uh, you know, you can see referenced in the, the book of Isaiah. People who care more about truth than they do about comfort. And there's some pretty important reasons for this. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. Alan Stevo has another piece published this morning on lewrockwell.com. That's L-E-W rockwell.com. One of my daily stops and has been for, holy cow, more than 20 years. I have been a regular, regular reader of Lou Rockwell, and uh, just uh, he, he collects new stuff every Monday through Friday, and then they have a weekend edition, lots of different articles, a blog that, that features lots of different articles as well, from many different points of view, but all with the understanding that, you know, freedom matters, and it has to be approached from a principled point of view. Alan Stevo is a remarkable voice particularly for standing up against uh, the people who would seize control of your life, whether it's under the pretext of COVID or something else. Today, he's warning about beware of the modernizers. And this is how he describes it. He says, many controlling Jezebel spirits exist. They're demonic and they need driving out from among us. Within that subset, a truly evil spirit exists inside some. It is the spirit of the modernizer. It is he who seeks to use trends as his ultimate authority in his weapon against his fellow man. It's not the tinkerer who experiments with building the latest technology and wants to be left alone to do so. It's not the technologist who drives industries. It's not the research-minded who likes to own every new invention within his field of expertise. That'd be whether it be a new cell phone or a new cooking utensil, every new gun or every new 3D printer... In other words, trends are not bad, technology is not bad, change is not bad. In fact, they can all be blessings. 
The spirit of control is what brings something so beneficial across a bad line. The modernizer takes what could be a blessing and uses it to tyrannically squeeze control out of another. So here are some examples. The modernizer in your midst looks down the nose at his country-dwelling aunt from the same village he came from before he was a cosmopolitan city man. He belittles his father who works the same job he's always worked. The job his grandfather and great-grandfather worked too. A very an honest job with very clear cash flow and very clear duties, very different from the way money seems to be made in modernity. He calls his grandma's religion, religion that has lasted the test of time, superstition. He calls his grandpa's money, money that has lasted the test of time, barbaric. He calls the village neighbors cures, cures which have lasted the test of time, dangerous and unproven. These are cures that helped bring him safely to adulthood, cures used several times a year for the first two decades of his life. He calls his uncle, whose house is effectively the family armory, a paranoid assault weapons freak. Uncle, grandpa, grandma, and the rest know too many stories passed down through the family over the generations to be anything but knowledgeable about protecting themselves. The protection is not from intruders and thieves, though that's important. The protection is not from animals, though that is important. The protection they are most mindful of is the need to protect themselves from those who come at them first with smiles and gifts and seek to liberate them if they would only give up a few basic liberties they take in life. When such people are told, no thank you, by these content village folk, they tend to take insult and to come back without that smile. Many times over generations, the family stories relate how quickly the person who claims to want to help can turn into the worst opponent of your health, wealth, and happiness. The modernizer calls the stable marriages that his family knows puritanical and oppressive. It matters little that such stability has worked well for so long. A stability that was enriching to generations. He pejoratively calls the stable home life he grew up with regressive and anti-feminist. He blames its lack of exoticness it's for his need for therapy. He was never able to properly explore alternative lifestyles as a child, he insists. The moral fabric of the home and village held him back. Now, Alan Stevo says, am I describing anyone contemporary for you? I may be describing a leftist or technocrat for you, one that exists in your own life today. These are the people who don't want to share their opinion with you through discussion. They are the people who want to use the force of government and its guns to intimidate you, coerce you, regulate you to second-class status, and to effectively do whatever is needed to impose their will upon you. That may sound like someone contemporary, but he says, I'm really trying to describe someone from a century ago, or even centuries ago, because this trend is timeless. He says, history has a lesson it wants to teach you. And Ottoman times tell a story about sociopathy and cowardice just as well as many other times do. He gives the example of one friend, a true lion of a man, a guy imbued with a warrior spirit, who's able to comment on the weakness of men in California and the Ottoman Empire alike. He may not realize it, but as he shares the stories of his family and from his own reading, He describes the same cycle of cussedness, prosperity, decadence, and decline of California and the United States as he once described the great Ottoman Empire. 
The only tough Turks are the Kurdish minority who originated from the Persian Empire. The rest are wimps. Now, this friend of Alan Stevo's denied a flight on Turkish airways. The cowardice of the man who turned him away reminded him of the tales of cowardly neighbors and overlords passed down in the family. Is such hyperbole factual? Of course not. Only is a figure of speech. The rest is a figure of speech. In every time and place, the brave stand. But in such hyperbole can truth certainly be found as well. The conqueror always wants the the brave man to think of himself alone. To imagine resistance is futile. He is, in fact, never alone. Now, there's much, much more to this essay, and I would encourage you to check it out. But the idea here, and this is here's one of the things I wanted to share. Don't let the reality of numbers shock you. So don't, if you feel alone, if you feel like, well, I'm the only person who really cares and I really can't do much about it. Alan Steve will remind you that upon the shoulders of the remnant, a new society will be built. I have a good friend. My buddy Simon has uh, has been saying this for some time, and I, and I think he's right. I'm less concerned with, as I look around and I, I, I see the problems, and it's not hard. You don't have to dig too deep to go, wow, there's, there's a real problem right there. But rather than trying to reform the systems, well, if we just vote smarter, if we just get the right people in here, we can get this thing fixed. I don't think it's fixable from a political standpoint. I think what we need to be focusing on, those of us who comprise this this remnant of people, again, these are the people for whom truth matters more than comfort, is we should be focusing on building whatever comes next. Now, for some people, that's a really hard sell. But it's, you know, typically, historically, when the masses run a system into the ground, and it's happened before, civilizations have declined some of them crashed and burned it's the remnant that steps forward from the dust and the rubble and begins to rebuild i don't know what the future will bring i don't know what opportunities or what uh, challenges but i'm pretty confident the fact that uh, you're listening to this message right now the fact that you found this program the fact that you're seeking truth probably makes you a part of that remnant And I'm not going to pretend that, boy, everything ahead of us is just going to be a cushy, easy thing. It probably isn't. But I believe that uh, you and I were born for a time such as this. And I believe that we were born to make a difference. So here's my invitation to you. Figure out what your role is. Figure out what your contribution is supposed to be. And with God's help, step up and make it happen. There's peace and there's happiness in doing it this way. This is The Brian Hyde Show.